Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of You Made Me Watch That, the podcast where two film studies professors aim to expand each other's cinematic knowledge one recommendation at a time. For this very special episode, uh, my co-host, Wickham Flanagan, and I, Colleen Kennedy-Carpot, have taken recommendations from a dream team of Beale Kent clubs, Think Colorfully, and the Beale Kent Wizards, along with our usual sponsors, the Beale Kent Cinema Society. And so today we will be talking about Jupiter Ascending, the 2015 sci-fi Masterpiece, epic yeah. From the Wachowskis. And Star Trek, The Next Generation, Season 5, Episode 17, titled The Outcast. The so Outcast. by request, big round of applause for our invitees today. Thank you so much for having us here. I am thrilled to be talking about Jupiter Ascending because this is something that Wickham has wanted to talk about since we started the podcast. That was one of the first since films Since I was that born, really, yeah. You were born in 2015. I, I feel like it's a movie that I was destined to talk about. Ah, well then, why don't you start us off? Um, well, uh, we are also going to dip our toe a little bit maybe into Matrix Resurrections. I perhaps. hope so. Yes. I have a lot of feelings um, about that. The one. Wachowskis in general... I have a real profound love for, and I feel like I respond to, I don't know how you feel about like what you get out of a movie experience, but I often just tend to, tend to respond to earnest love of making movies. So that's one reason why I love Guillermo del Toro so much. Mm. When I perceive like a, just a joyful whimsy to just the art of making stuff. And obviously The Matrix is a good movie. Kind of outside of that, it's obviously a classic film in a lot of respects in terms of its genre melding, but I find that nowadays they, uh, especially Lana Wachowski, just kind of make movies that are fun for them, and they don't really necessarily care too much about critical reception, or at the very least, their movies kind of go bananas in a way. They lean into some campier aspects that um, seem to be, you know, have a lack of self-awareness, or at the very least, are just having fun with the, you know, the art of movie making. Uh, Cloud Atlas is another sort of example of something ambitious and just kind of there for the sake of it, almost. Uh, all of these movies bombed horribly. I think even Matrix <laughs> Resurrections also did terribly at the box office, which is sad. Yeah, but, I, but again, I mean, it's hard to talk about box office from the past couple of years just because that's of, true. of, you know, nobody quite knows what to do with releases if theaters are either not an option or only half-heartedly an option. Um, so I, I, I don't like talking about box office yeah. in recent releases, especially comparatively, especially compared to, you know, what theater going would have been. Well, Jupiter Ascending came out pre-pandemic and yes. it did not do very well. No. well. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Jupiter Ascending is a movie that I have to confess when I first watched it, I was not entirely sober at the time. And I feel like that clouded my judgment. I feel like that made it more fun for me when yeah. I initially watched it. I was at my desk at work. You were at your desk at work. <laughs> so you had a very different experience. I think sure I was did. with a group of people. Um, and yeah, do you, uh, since I, it was my film that I brought to you. Well, um, yes. And, and that we, we got called up by our, our sponsors today. Um, what did you make of Jupiter Ascending? Oh, I, I am terrified by the thought that I have to make anything of Jupiter Ascending, <laughs> to be honest. Um, um, I was struck particularly by the color palette, which is this like oxblood red with a different palette of blues. And the way that that gets repeated in the costumes, in the setting, in, in a lot of the set decoration in some random places, I th it really brings things together. Visually, there's a lot going for this movie, but yes. at the same time, there are a lot of technical issues that... Uh, take you out of the movie in ways that I would have suspected that 
somebody would have told them, hey, like, you can fix this. Yeah. Do you yeah. think that I don't, it's very difficult to know how much like oversight was done. And that's partially why I enjoy it is that it feels kind of messy in a very earnest way, like I said. Um, but certainly the campier aspects of it, this is something that yes. Matrix Reloaded trades in. It has ghosts. It has Monica Bellucci. It has French accents. It has <laughs> a, a ton of ridiculousness with the Matrix premise. And a lot of people were not prepared for that. And Jupiter yes. Ascending feels like they just lean into it. Yes, I would agree. Uh, Matrix Resurrections is really about moments of camp. Yes. And and when those moments come, they're very clearly announced and they are sort of contained within this already very meta narrative yes. that's going on. With it that definitely movie. is more restrained than Jupiter Ascending. But Jupiter Ascending, like there's no containment for the camp. No. And it, it does sort of blindside you in interesting ways. Yeah. So why, why don't we talk a, a little bit, we'll pause and, and, and talk a little bit about camp because I have a feeling this is going to come up again when yes. we talk about Star Trek. Yes. So what do you understand by camp? What do I understand about camp? Yes. I just, what is it? And A Rocky Horror Picture it? Show. Okay. Well. If you look it up, camp in the dictionary, there's a... There's Tim Curry. There's Tim Curry. In full drag. Right there. Right there. Well, yes. Um, I, I, I think it is just this... My, my former mentor described camp to me, and how I often like to describe it in class, is like wedding photos. Um, specifically, the photos you take before the wedding. So like it's people, you know, swinging each other around on a beach or something and the light is trickling in and it's all kind of excessive and ridiculous. And there's no irony to that, but you can perceive it as kind of a campy exaggeration of someone's love in that sense. And, and I always, that always analogy always kind of stuck with me. Obviously, you know, just that kind of excess is taken to different levels in such examples as this, but... Yeah, excess is a good way to put it, but I mean, there's a very particular kind of superficiality to that excess that needs An to irony, happen. perhaps? To, sometimes. I'm not sure that it always takes place. I mean, this, this I, I believe this goes back to Susan Sontag, who is still to this day the big theorist on camp. And if you, you've not read Notes on Camp, if you're within the sound of my voice, go and read Sontag's Notes on Camp. It's a fantastic essay. Still, I think the best attempt to contain what camp actually is. Um, even if she doesn't get there and I think admits her failure at the end of the essay to really you know, delve into all the different um, aspects of it. Uh, but you know, my advisor explained it to, to my class uh, yeah. that I was TAing for as he, he had a scene in mind of violins in an orchestra sequence from like a film from the 30s or 40s. And the violins all had like neon lights around them mm. as the musicians were playing them. It is entirely unnecessary. <laughs> and having it changes the entire way that you see what's going on there. But again, it's this note of superficiality. Uh, anyway, but for, for Sontag, there's, there's naive camp. And there's deliberate camp. Yes. And so Rocky Horror Picture Show is definitely not naive camp. No. Somebody's random wedding photos would be naive right. camp. Right. So there's a distinction there. There's a really interesting distinction to be made there. And obviously what the Wachowskis are dealing in with Jupiter Ascending, I think is extremely knowing camp. Well, I would, but, I would but, maybe disagree yes, with that. In, but, but they, the Wachowskis, know their camp. I trust them completely. It is the actors, yeah. in particular, Mila Kunis. Mila Kunis, God bless her. I don't her. think has ever read Susan Sontag. So, so as a, <laughs> as a, as a setup for Jupiter Sending for those uninitiated, the premise is basically like a mixture of Cinderella and some more kind of interesting Doctor Who episode where 
It's people harvesting planets for profit so they can live endlessly. And Mila Kunis happens to be the genetic descendant of the goddess of the universe. Something, Something like that. Queen of the universe, okay. not necessarily a deity. Um, and Mila Kunis, God bless her. Um, Mila Kunis <laughs> is, I think she brings a really nice, easygoing energy. I want to give her props for movies like Forgetting Sarah Marshall or Black Swan, where she is nice. She is oh, yeah, the she nice. She can be good. Well, she's often the nice counter, relaxed counterpoint to a movie that's teeming with anxiety, like a black swan, right? She's very easygoing, but she is very much, she is not on board for whatever Jupiter Ascending is putting down. I think she's horribly miscast. Yes. I don't know how they ended up with her. Yeah, it makes you wonder just generally how these casting yeah, directives I, I, go. I have no idea the history. I didn't look into this, but I would, I would be very Channing surprised. Channing Tatum more, makes more sense. He does make more sense. As a dog man. Well. <laughs> oh, also there are genetic splicing of humans with animals. Because is, why not? Because why not? There is a literal elephant man. Oh, I missed that. You missed the elephant man? I guess I did. The highlight of the, one of the highlights of the film is she, it's someone goes. we joke for you? I don't know, but we need to go into warp speed and the elephant man goes, he has like a toot of his, um, and this is the kind of stuff I like about the movie. There's a scene in the movie that I think very much sums up what I, how I feel about it. And um, uh, Mila Kunis is part of like a Russian immigrant family. I don't entirely yeah, know. something like that. And the, but they're all non-Russian actors and they're all speaking with terrible Russian actors and it's like a dinner scene. Uh, and they're all going, you know, they're going, how could you do this to your sister? And it's all just really terrible and cartoonish and it's the most annoying scene possible. And then in the middle of a scene, a bunch of dragon people swoop in from the ceiling and go rah <laughs> and to me that is representative of the whole movie it's like the movie knew it was being actually terrible and so it kind of swooped in to save the day with some needless ridiculousness and there's this constant back and forth between actually bad and kind of it knowingly kind of responding to that okay my moment for this is you were talking about when she's in the wedding gown at the begin before the yes. wedding ceremony and fantastic she's like over exaggerated costumes. Oh, we should sure. Mention. Yeah. The costumes are A plus. And the special effect. There was so there much was some... money in oh, this yeah. movie. Slashing. It's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like you said, you wonder how much oversight they had for this because I have a feeling that they just never did. <laughs> but they, 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 had, they did all of their movies were not particularly successful, unfortunately. No, I mean, it was... Cloud Atlas had prestige written into it. Right. In Speed Racer. Speed Racer was Less a big so. flop. But yeah. that was, Speed Racer was, what, 2008? Something like that. Something yeah. like that. And then Cloud Atlas was four years later. With Tom with Twiker. Tyker. Tyker. I always mess up his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> run low the run guy. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there was, a, you know, another collaborator involved there. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, as a quote unquote unfilmable book adapted for the screen, that had, you know, a lot of you know, prestige veneer to it that Speed Racer certainly didn't. Um, and then the following, what, what came after that? Speed Racer, Cloud After, Atlas. Uh, Cloud Atlas, and, and, then, and, then, and then Jupiter Ascending. Ascending. Yeah. Oh, okay. So this is the follow-up to Cloud and Atlas. And then Matrix Resurrections, okay. uh, where the, the other where, Wachowski... Yes, yes, Lily was not involved right. in the Resurrections. And you could almost hear, like, the... The, the, there's there's yeah. the bit in Matrix Resurrections, and we'll get back to Jupiter Ascending, where there's the, the, the boardroom sequence. And I have Idea, to say, ideas are the new sexy. Ideas are yeah. something yeah. like that. And yeah. But there is a point where it's like, well, they're going to make it with or without you. So you might have, like, somebody absolutely said that probably verbatim <laughs> to, yes. to Lana Wachowski and possibly Lily as well. But Lana's just like, 
And Lana I'll had do a, it. <laughs> and then, you know, well, Lana actually had a very emotional piece about, I believe it was the death of her parents sort of inspired this and like the matrix was the start of her career. Mm. And, and it was like, well, I want to resurrect. It was like a, it was like a metaphorical resurrection they of people. They also made bound. They also made bound. I yes. Mean, that was before the matrix. Let's, yeah, that's Let's true. Give some credit here. That's true. I mean, yes, there's, the there's the, your career and then there's your career. I mean, you see yes. this also with stardom. There's, you know, what happens before. And My then, point is she, your point is she gave a more earnest explanation for what, why it's called resurrections. Right. This idea of resurrecting characters that, you know, helped her career in this way. Yeah. And this so, no, I mean, I think it's a great meta movie and, but you can see very clearly it's, you know, in literature, you call this the roman a clé. There's a, a key to your own personal life as a creator written right there into the story. If you have the key, you can, you know, work backwards and figure out, you know, what people are actually talking about. You can see that a lot in Resurrections. You don't really see that in Jupiter Ascending. But my moment of camp yeah. to return to that wedding sequence, she's standing at the top in this gorgeous gown, you know, big money sloshing all over the screen, the effects, the setting, all of this. And she just looks down and goes, holy crap. <laughs> It just like completely deadpan. <laughs> completely deadpan. And just, you know, that's the kind of thing that you could just emote. But see, want. that maybe as that's an actor, un- Do you think that's unintentional? Actor. Unintentional camp in that I case. I think, I see, that's the thing. I have a feeling somebody, like, I, I, whose intention, I suppose, is my question. Do you think that the Wachowski said, yes, that's perfect, cut, print, nailed it, Mila? Or do you think that she didn't know what she was looking at and well, she just sort of went, whoa? And they're like, that's the best we got. I don't know. Well, because Eddie Redmayne, can we talk oh about my, Eddie Redmayne? Please. Oh my God. <laughs> Let me stop his, laughing. Like, his, his like chest exposed and he just kind of and, and talks like this. I can't understand a word he's saying. I <laughs> he starts screaming. And then he goes, I'm great life. Yes, I wrote I that down it. in my notes. Oh, <laughs> how dare you? He's, uh, he's fantastic. He won the Oscar for that. Uh, he did not. Uh, but he correct the record. He won for Theory of Everything there that you year. Go. The same, which is that is worth noting, because the Oscars do have a tendency of awarding like a really good year to sort of whichever movie breaks through the cracks. So there is a non-zero chance that people who voted for him for Theory of Everything had also seen Jupiter Ascending were like, this was a fantastic year for him, and that's what secured their vote. Yeah, one for you and one for me kind of mentality. Maybe he just enjoyed doing this kind of. I think he had the best time. Oh, for sure. Doing this, I do not have the best time watching this. I have to say, this is you know the cringe meter goes up to about (laughs) twelve with this. It was camp overload at that point. It was. It was. I mean, this is deliberate. (laughs) That's what I often say about Rocky Horror Picture Show: is that I Mm. enjoy that movie, but at a certain point, your your capacity to enjoy it. Kind of, I don't know. But it's Tim, it's almost too terminal irony. But Tim Curry does not come off as a tryhard ever. That is a good in that point. Movie. Do you think Eddie ever. Redmayne is coming off as a tryhard? Every second he's <laughs> on screen. That makes it more fun for me. And it's also it's like it's if I was in true Jupiter for theory of everything. In fact, just why a whole lot of people were like, "God, this and guy. Fantastic Beast to a certain extent. And yeah. Yes, and and all yeah. of those. But kinds I like of I like him. I like. I'm not seeing the okay. the Danish girl, which I know. Got a lot, a lot of press. Yeah, it did, and not all of it positive. Yeah, I've not. <laughs> but I've I mean, a lot of that. that has to do with the premise, and 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 what year was that? Same I think year, that was. The following I think it was year. after. That was post Oscar. Yeah. Yeah. 
Post Jupiter Ascending and post Oscar. That's how we should refer to all movies. Post Jupiter Ascending. Post Jupiter Ascending. PJA. <laughs> I, I look forward to them making a sequel. We should also mention a sequel uh, to Jupiter yeah, Ascending. Yeah, of course. There's I mean, some, really, why not? Yeah, of course. Um, they are now. In case you all were wondering, they are auctioning off like their props from all their movies. I don't know if it's Lana specifically. It was Lily who posted on Twitter. Lily, okay. This week. Well, you can buy Channing Tatum's wolf ears. <laughs> It says used. <laughs> so in case you really wanted to embrace Channing Tatum, there's a great scene where he says, I have more in common with a dog than I have with you. And she goes, I love dogs. I've always loved dogs. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know what, she, what they're trying to say. I don't think in, she's in, in an interview, In an interview, they talk about how she, he's basically Toto from what? Wizard of Oz. Oh, yeah. well, there's that, another queer intertext for sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. for sure. But I, I, I really just enjoy Jupiter saying sometimes Mark Kermode said, you know, sometimes I was laughing at the film. Sometimes I was laughing with the film. And I think the point is, is that I was entertained. And I don't think that Jupiter Ascending gets enough credit for being entertaining. Okay. And I, and I appreciate you taking the plunge. It is a total guilty pleasure. Some of the camp is intentional. Some of it isn't. Um, well, I think, again, I, I think if we can read this, like Mila Kunis is just t doing what whoever's, you know, one of the Wachowskis is telling her to do, and that's what ends up in the final cut, then that's their intention for the camp. I just, uh, yes. I just, I just, I don't think she has any grasp of what's actually going on yes. at any given point. Yes. Or I, Sean yeah. Bean is giving a committed performance. He is, yeah. And he stays alive. Yeah. Spoilers. Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry. He's, he, does, he's, he manages to stay alive. Um, I just wanted to point out that I had to pause the movie at right about the exact midpoint. And I, I've always said, like, this is something I teach with narrative structure. Like, you, you want to look at the midpoint. What is the big turning point? Usually, yes. there, usually there's something big going on at the middle of a movie, I will say. And right at the midpoint of Jupiter Ascending, do you know what sequence that is? Is it? Exact midpoint. Oh, boy. No. I don't know. The bureaucracy. They're going around to all the different offices. Brazil. The, Basically, the yes. Film. They're redoing yeah. Brazil. Yeah. When Terry Gilliam shows up, did you know that? Oh, no. He's the guy who this. He's the guy who looks like a steampunk hobbit. No. I have to go back and see that again. <laughs> That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the lawyer or whoever who's with her is really like this close to losing it. But and it's like tonally it's, completely it's, different from the rest is. of the movie. Yeah. It is. And that's ex that's the midpoint right there. Yeah. So, yeah, that's when you can start going, yeah, they're, they're doing something. <laughs> we don't really know what at the yeah. end. Yeah. But, yeah, you run the credits and hope, go, that was something. I just hope they can, they can continue to make movies like this. But I worry yeah. that they so much investment in their movies that has gone un... And that's why I mentioned the box offices. These kinds of movies will not exist if they don't make money. In Speaking of money, though, do you there was did you notice one of the executive producers on Jupiter Ascending? Uh, I did not look at that credit. No, Steve Mnuchin. Really? Yes, one of the devils of the last American presidential administration. Why did? Yeah. They, why did? They... He's in movies. Did you not know this? No. He's no. big in production. I was shocked for personally. Is he in the movie as well? I don't, who knows? I don't think he's the kind to do like Stan Lee cameos or anything did like that. Biden do any? No. This <laughs> exactly. 2015. Come on. I mean, this is before you know the Be actual if, political like, apocalypse. A GOP um, member. Was but on no. That. But Steve Mnuchin. All right. Co-executive produced this movie. Well. 
Take that to your trivia nights, kids. <laughs> I, that, that, is bound, that is bound to come up. That is literally the unlikeliest person I ever thought I'd see in the credits of Jupiter Ascending. But there we are. Money talks. Money's money. So Shall we, shall we move to shall we? Star yes. Trek? Let's so, move to Star Trek. I am not a Trekkie. I have seen... You have to be careful with your vocabulary. What, 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 is, the, what is the proper vernacular? Uh, that, a that, trek that, aficionado that, it's a little wordy yes but um, i think you should hedge your words okay i i don't know trek okay. very well um i've seen the chris pine movies <laughs> um i saw the first <laughs> because one because that's how we all know them. yeah that's the <laughs> they're, they're the, the most premiere <laughs> star trek beyond is pretty good i think that I movie think gets that a one. that's the third one it gets a bad rep but anyway um some of the into darkness is stupid, but the uh, into lens flares. Yes, what I call J- that one. and JJ it's really JJ did not do Star Trek Beyond, which is why uh, it's maybe better than the other. So ones. there's only like twelve lens flares as opposed to two hundred. And Simon Pegg co-wrote it, I think. No way. Yeah, so it has uh, a more charm. It's more. Okay. It's more. I feel like it's more. in I've heard it's more similar to the show. I see. Um, my experience with Star Trek is often watching. I don't know how many of y'all are familiar with Red Letter Media which is a YouTube uh, group. They do this great uh, sort of, you know, kind of retelling of their favorite Trek episodes, specifically The Next Generation. And they also talk about how terrible Star Trek Discovery is and how Ooh. terrible Star Trek Picard is. And I don't, I don't know, I've not watched any of this stuff, but I find it interesting to kind of gather this kind of opinion from these people who clearly know their stuff. So it was very interesting to watch, finally, The Outcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it was fun to kind of go through all the titles, just kind of combing through Netflix. So this was the first Star Trek episode I've ever seen, period. For, really? Yes. Of all time. Wow. Yeah. And it was an interesting experience. Okay. Can we talk about the production of it? Um, can I just say, I don't believe, uh, maybe you can all back me up. I don't think this is a representative episode of The Next Generation in a lot of ways. Okay. Uh, I do, it was, it, it's, it's, The premise I mean, is, do you want to? The premise is, uh, let, me, let me go into my own personal connections to okay. Star Trek. So I, I also would not call myself an aficionado or any of the other terms, but, um, I watched every episode of Star Trek The Next Generation as it was on television growing up because my parents were big into Star Trek. Ah. And they, you know, my parents knew each other in high school. And uh, if they're listening, hi, mom, hi, dad. Um, they, they, they would sit together in study hall and talk about Star Trek episodes, which is very, very cute. So the meet cute for my parents involved Star Trek and study hall. Aww. And so when The Next Generation like came on television, no, it was nothing like that. Okay. I mean... There were, there, I don't, there, I mean, there were cons, I guess, at the time, but I mean, that was a really like niche thing that happened in giant cities that were a five hour drive from where I grew yeah. up. I mean, this was not like the, the big, you know, mainstreaming of geek culture that we have had in the, you know, yes. 40, 50, whatever, however many years since then. Um, so anyways, I would have, I mean, I was scrolling through the same episodes that you did and I'm thinking, Yep. Yep, saw that, remember that. And then we got to the, I think it was season three, where it ends with you know Picard getting semi-assimilated by the Borg. And I, that's like one of the most personally memorable bits of television I ever saw as a kid, because my entire family was like, <gasps> and then we had to wait. Imagine waiting <laughs> until the whole next season was ready to resolve that storyline. This is what television was like, kids, back when it was actually on TV and not binging 12 seasons of something on Netflix. I mean, it was 
that I remember this so clearly as television. And one of the things I really liked about going back to this, because I have not rewatched any of this. I know it's available. I guess it was a big thing when like Star Trek generally just sort of invaded Netflix. Yeah, that's pretty awesome that everything is on there. there. Yeah. So I'm, I look forward to going back and actually watching some more of this, even though my husband was definitely making fun of me <laughs> for watching Star Trek. What's this? Like, memories, go away. <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I love that the credits actually match the actor names to character names. Bring that back. That's extremely helpful. Um, it just, uh, just the <laughs> Seems whole like a hyper-specific thing to, no, to focus I, on. No, I, 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 I would, I, like, this is great. Why don't we do this for everything? <laughs> um, but just anyway. Just for clarity? Just for clarity, yeah. I mean, but I mean, it was a very similar um, sensation that, that I had when watching Twin Peaks for a different episode of the podcast, which I had never seen. Um, and so it made me watch Twin Peaks. I'm a big Lynchian. I, yeah. I mean, you're, you're just like knocking off Did all the David goals Lynch that you had for this. Did David Lynch direct an episode of Star Trek? I don't think that so. That seems like a match made I in think heaven. I, oh, I, oh mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> or at least starred in one. Well, yeah. the, starring is different. Yeah. That could be something. Yeah, but anyway, I really enjoyed revisiting this world and how strictly episodic it was and just total television production values through and oh, through. Oh, God. I just, was, this I is was, totally pre-prestige television. I was and you just have to go and amazed it. by the sound design because the entire mm. time it was just... <laughs> yes. That was it. There was no music, really. When the music did come in, I was like, oh... Music, because there was it was so stark. Like they, they were like walking on in slippers. It, it felt very bizarrely muted in terms of sound design, except for this low hum yes, of the. That's the enterprise. Of the enterprise. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I feel like all of the one of the things I found charming about it was that all of the concessions of like television, they just use. It was like the production values of the TV show meant that they could. Just like, oh, you just teleport there. Like, we yeah. don't need to show no. anything. You just teleport. Yeah. I just teleport over here. So there, there was no reason to show any fancy space travel. No. Oh, this is an alien planet. So we have like ferns and various other recognizable human or earth earth uh, flora here. Yes. Uh, it, it felt very convenient for how cheap the show was. <laughs> cheap. Uh. <laughs> I mean, cheap in a, in a, in a charming way. Can you reach the knife way. that's right there in my back? Uh, well, it, it, it seemed fairly cheap compared well. to Jupiter Ascending. But, but again, um, well, we can't all be Steve Mnuchin over apparently. here. Apparently. <laughs> what if projects? he invested? No. Um, oh, God. Wait, he's like the treasurer. Never yeah, mind. Was, that's a different. He was the treasury secretary anyway, under yes. the last guy. Anyway. Um, yes. So that was weird. And, and and we talked about, again, the earnestness of uh, oh, what, yeah. something that I really appreciated about which, this. Which I find sh just... You saying this, and you also saying I've never seen Star Trek, but you are about to get some of the best television of your well, entire life. Let's not life. get ahead of ourselves. I mean, mm. okay, I have machinations here. We're gonna have to make you. But you mentioned that this. this was not a representative episode. Of I don't the, think so. The no. Outcast. Yes. Can we can we give a basic yes. setup? Um, um, and an androgynous race of aliens who have weird foreheads, um, who all are seemingly. Coded, they're all played by women, it seemed, um, but they are coded as being genderless. Yes. And they, they have an interesting conversation about pronouns, which I thought was... Yes, that's extremely... Very, very prescient, yes. Yeah, well, no, I mean, that's another thing that I think we should mention. I mean, this is 1992, I think. 
Um, yeah, 92. You want me to tell you how old I was? I don't know. Okay. I do not, as okay. a matter of fact. Okay, I won't. It was 1992. And, you know, television plays such an important role in just the, the explosion of queer rights. Are, are you old enough to remember Ellen DeGeneres coming out? I remember the newspaper cover. Oh, or the, not the newspaper. I'm not that old, but the <laughs> magazine cover. I remember that being like a big thing. I feel like I dead by that point. I feel like I read oh. Mad Magazine, and Mad Magazine would often Mad Magazine covered Ellen DeGeneres in the late nineties, or some some variation of that. Oh, um, man. That's how I found out about OJ too. All of these things. Came but anyway, Mad Magazine. Well, that was the Daily Show before there was the Daily Show. But anyway, yes. No, Anyways. I don't. I don't. It was not a conscious thought. No, right. but I do remember that yeah. magazine cover. So, I mean, if you're looking back through this lens of what came in the late '90s when Ellen DeGeneres came out and and really just sparked all kinds of conversations at all levels of culture in the United States. I yeah. mean, she has, you know, since become what she is now. But I mean, at the time, this was an enormous turning point for gay rights. Um, and so to look back through that from the late 90s to 1992 and see all of this playing out in Star Trek, it's not a surprise that it's in, Star, it's in Star Trek. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing that you would get in a Star Trek episode. Take a social issue or a social yes. reality and you know make it look alien by giving these traits to aliens somehow or having to explain to aliens something about human nature and sort of kind of giving us the, the the narrative structure to be critical and ask questions and sort of stage yeah. these conversations like pronouns and to be able yes. to sort of you know have these conversations in um in, in, in a fictional space, yeah. kind of before society is ready to address them in actual personal space. Also, yeah, that the pronoun. There's a couple points I was like, "Ooh, that's that's interesting that you're reflecting on this." There are several ways that it's coded, though, that I feel like it's having its cake and eating it too. The fact that it is like an alien thing as well means that they're not really fully willing to accept an actual like. Also, the fact that it's played by a woman, it feels like oh, this will be more acceptable if Riker is you know, falling in love. She, she is identifying as a woman, but there's also a sense like, Ooh, what if, if she was played by a man identifying as a woman? But the, 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 I guess the, you know, the show was not ready for this or the era was not ready for that or whatever. Um, but what it reminded me of, and this is where I was going to go and do a deep dive into something nerdy. Um, so please, how many of y'all familiar with mass effect? There is a race uh, we have a and show of hands. There yes. is a there is a Mass Effect. There's a video game series named Mass Effect, which is very Trek inspired, and there is a race that are um, Asari, I think that's the name, and they are coded as being gender uh, neutral. Okay, but they are clearly sexualized and meant to look very much like women, and so it's it's sort of a weird kind of double standard, but it's still interesting that they are there. There's one part where you are, um, and there's like a sex scene that you can have with Seta, sorry, but as a woman, um, but there is not necessarily too much on, on the other end of the spectrum. I guess it took until eventually there you could have gay relationships, but it was usually, um, that was, it took a while for the franchise to get there. And anyway, sex and relationships and games has always been kind of a weird uh, middle ground. What year are we talking about for this? Oh, that's a very good series. question. Um, but what I was going to point out is Everyone there was, picks up their phones. there was a, they just <laughs> did a re-release, they just did a re-release of it. So I've been playing through ah. Mass Effect 2007. 2007. Ah, okay. Um, 
but there's one part where you, she, she, uh, or, um, they, I guess, come out and saying like, we, we have no in, gender. In Mass Effect or in Star Trek? In Mass Effect. Ma okay. And then there is, you have dialogue choices and one of them is like, but you're a girl or something. And it feels so, <laughs> and it's like in all caps and it's like, this feels weirdly reductive. Uh, but then she like gently explains to you like, no, in fact, I'm not blah, blah, blah. Um, but one of the interesting things I wanted to point out about Mass Effect is that you can play as a woman. Mm -hmm. You can play as a woman or play as a man. And I would often play as a woman because I found that that made things more interesting. Or at the very least, we don't see often that representation in games outside of maybe Tomb Raider. And then there's the Chun -Li. whole... Chun-Li. Represent for Chun-Li. But she, I mean, <laughs> there's always like an objectifying aspect with well, like yeah. her thighs <laughs> and uh, Tomb Raider, obviously. Um, and I was often play as a woman sometimes looking like Grace Jones because I find Ooh. that I wanted more characters to look like to Grace, Grace Jones. Jones. And I've, I wanted to give a little story recount of my falling in love with Thane, who is this green fish man. Can I, can I, can I indulge you in this? I wish we could cue up some music. <laughs> my green fish man. And it was this tragic story. And, um, and I was, I was a woman, but you know, I, I it was an interesting experience for me as, as a heterosexual guy playing as a woman who was falling in love with a fish man. It was like my shape in the water moment. I was going to say, moment. when did Del Toro watch you play? Thane <laughs> is an emotional assassin. What? <laughs> he's an emotional assassin. Well, that explains a lot. Yeah, he's an emotional assassin who often would refer back to a memory and he would kind of, he would refer to it in a phenomenological way where he'd be like, wind rustling through the trees my bullet pierces their heart you know he would talk in this way and i fell in love with him and he was great and I, he's one of my favorite all-time video game characters there he is there's the fish man it's, it's... I, that is probably derogatory i shouldn't call him a fish man he has a he has a race and, and everything but uh, one of the tragic things that happen is you can have you can have uh, sexual relations with these characters but I was playing a renegade character, which is to say I was tough. And so there's a part where you can get to where you can basically consummate your relationship. And I was like, no, <laughs> we need to focus on the mission. And he was like, I guess, my love, we will. We will. And, and, then, and then in the next game, he died of a genetic disease. And it was one of the most tragic moments. And he was saying, like, we never had our moment, did we? And I went, yes, we didn't, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> and, and this episode, my point being, this episode of Star Trek made me relive all of these emotions. But, and, I, and I found it to be an interesting, you know, con concept of gender, you know, this idea that I was able to, you know, have this virtual relationship with a, with a fish man um, meant a lot to me, and it still does, and the fact that the, it played out the way it did. So, I don't know, I feel like... Mass Effect has been is liber, uh, you know liberally taking these things from this, oh, uh, no doubt. And I really appreciated the fact that for one thing, the idea of like a correctional like a orientation. Ooh, I forget yeah. the name. Uh, yes. Um, correctional facility. There is this is a real thing that in in America I know of. Um, uh, if you watch the Sasha Baron Cohen film Bruno, he he interviews um, kind of one of the presidents of it. It's this horrifying. Um, yes, the term is escaping my mind. Yeah, too. 
but it, the, the, what they're talking about in Star Trek is this idea of like, well, as a race, conversion she is, therapy, conversion therapy. Yeah. Yes. So she That's is the leaning code for it, basically. And they're describing conversion therapy yes. to a T in this episode. Yes. And, I, that was, and obviously I was, it already existed at the time. And, and you know, slowly places are starting to outlaw this. Um, so that, whilst but, I could of course, see yeah, other places are going regressively, unfortunately. But um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so whilst I could see that the episode was, you know, you know, baby steps towards an actual like like there have been different ways to make it more um progressive obviously yeah. not from 1992 but i appreciated that like yeah. that was pretty daring to comment on that and also the fact that the episode ends in what such a ending? tragic way oh my god i was so angry at this ending I, my, my jaw was about i really floor. appreciated it because it had more of an emotional you, impact i i felt like i mean picard is just like are we done here and riker's like he just like basically just shrugs. That's he the, says the he loves like, her, but 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 then like she she goes through the conversion yes, therapy, and like, you don't just, know that it's happened. And she's like, I just felt bad that I wanted to be, and this was all my yeah, fault. Yeah, and you sort of see the results Ugh. of it, and it's just oh yeah, it's it's oh like I, I oh, yeah, but so just I, the way I, that they conclude, like they don't conclude on that emotional farewell. It's yes. the captain just being like, all right, we done? Yeah, okay, moving on. And then there was this, like, to, to your point about the credits, there's, there was this triumphant music to go boldly go wherever yeah. we go. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's there's this the emotional, the devastating thing that happened. Oh, Why are so, we so triumphant about yeah. it? Can, um, we, can we talk very briefly about yeah. Worf? I, I know you don't. <laughs> Worf has a Worf? giant head for a relatively normal human-sized body. Well, part of that's makeup. I know. You know but, but, it looked, but also it Michael ridiculous. Dorn does have a pretty big head. Anyway. <laughs> but, but I mean, Worf, bless Worf, honestly, just generally, like one of my favorite characters, but just giving him the most bluntly, like, phobic lines, the yes. entire thing, the Janai, they bother me. <laughs> women have too many wild cards. Yes, and the women are just like, Worf. <laughs> With a little more Star Trek neutrality, but those were some really great scenes. Anyway, yeah. um, I'm just wondering too: was Lavar Burton filming something else in this season? Does anybody know if he was in another? Because it's like reading Rainbow. When did he get a beard? Lavar Burton was Jordy LaForge. I know he's did reading you, Rainbow. Yeah, he's reading Rainbow. Did he? Did he? Did he did, do are you all aware of reading Rainbow? Reading Sidebar: Rainbow. Reading Rainbow. Holy cow! That was still around when you were a kid, right? Yes. Lavar Burton was the host of a literacy program for children, like small children. He does like not have the visor on. Do, he, like a normal human, he's on screen, right? <laughs> this is before he was cast in Star Trek. Oh, I didn't was, know that. Yes. Okay. Oh, this goes back to when I was a little wee one, and this was on TV. It was on public television, and he would basically just. There was a theme song. Yes. Yeah. A couple of versions. Reading of, Rainbow. Yes, and, and there's a like very '70s animation that goes with the. You can look this up. All of this, I'm sure, is on YouTube and probably full episodes. It was public television, like I said, so it's you know it's out there. Um, but he would come and, and you know, very, you know, genial, personable character. And for like 20 some years, he was the host of the show to read a book to kids on public television. And then he was cast in, um, in The Next Generation. And so it was something as well, like as a kid, like just sort of just, yeah, too, that's just awesome. barely too old enough for reading Rainbow. And then he's on this show that my parents had loved. And now we're all watching it together. So, I mean, that yes, having him generally as Geordie LaForge was also very um, meaningful to me. But honest to God, he's got a beard in this season. I don't even remember that he ever had. I mean, I remember when Riker grew a beard, and that was like front page geek news, really. And somebody like wrote a letter, said you should keep it. It looks better. And I then he had everyone... a beard for the rest of the show. But I mean, his shoulders are like the same size as, as a tree. <laughs> and that's not You were really normal. analyzing when he but showed I up. Just, 
Well, he's no, in just, the show for like three yeah, but seconds. Yeah, but the, but one of those is like a direct back angle, and it's like you can draw a triangle on Jordy LaForge's back. Like this is not normal. <laughs> was he doing something else? Like, just, he was getting in shape for reading Apparently, Rainbow. I guess I don't know. <laughs> How, he was reading War and Peace to the five year olds. Yes. <laughs> he's got a uh, book. I just we, we, I, I, yeah. I I made a note to look that up because like that can't be accidental. I don't know how they retailed. He doesn't do much in the Retailered episode. his suit? I mean, really. I, w- I was going to say that everyone seemed to act like Spock. There was like an emotional disconnect, but then when Riker smiled, I was like, oh, <laughs> they have feelings. They're not just... Because everyone's super professional, and one of them's a robot, and I understand that Patrick Stewart is very kind of... He's very diplomatic and everything. So it was nice that... I, I, enj- I enjoyed fundamentally that this was an episode that featured just a lot of flirting, fundamentally. And that was kind of nice to see. I didn't know that Star Trek traded in just people talking and, you know, showing their interest in one another. So that was nice. So in general, I, I think I will watch other episodes oh, after this. Oh, if you're into sincerity. Yeah, man, I am into sincerity. This is exactly your jam. Is there anything like Jupiter Ascending? Is there any Ooh. like profound camp stuff in there? I, th- I understand I the production values. Most, yeah, the... most of, I think, the original series for Star Trek okay. trades more in camp. I mean, I'm sure there are camp moments that I don't remember. When he's fighting, like, that lizard guy, the Gorn. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah, yeah. The Tribbles. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I had a Tribble. Like, I mean, anyway, I think I bought it at the Space Museum. Like a Museum. live Tribble? No, like a little little Tribble souvenir from, from the Space Museum in Washington, D.C., where they had a special Star Trek. And you had a Geordi LaForge poster, apparently. I did not. <laughs> I did not. Okay. <laughs> I, I, it, was, it was not the memory of Geordi LaForge, the character, that I recall. Okay. And suddenly it's like, this does not compute. <laughs> I guess Riker has always been kind of like a, like a flirty character. He is the, the character, and I'm, you can correct me if I'm wrong, um, audience, but I mean, he is the character who is allowed to actually like do sexy stuff. <laughs> I mean, Data is not allowed to do sexy stuff. No, okay. I think he, there is an arc, if I'm not mistaken, where like there he tries to do a, a relationship in that way. Uh, oh boy, <laughs> we're, we're, we're writing our own questions here. I think we better wrap this up. Okay, all right. Yeah, uh, forgive us if we're a bit uh, if I'm a bit uninitiated, yeah. but yeah, it was very yeah, nice to, to to watch it. Yep, sure uh, so was. So thanks to everyone for suggesting it. Yes. Um, do you want to do the outro? Well, or? no, I, we're here for questions. Are we Are we outroing and then questions? We're doing questions. Let's do questions, questions first. So yes. if you all have a question regarding us or kind of our perspective on this topic or any other topic related to this, please feel free to ask us and we will, we will answer. Go ahead. Um, I haven't watched any um, episodes from... The next generation, but I started watching the um, classic uh, series, and uh, in the classic series, mostly uh, at, the, at the start of the episode, I say like, "Oh, they are going to uh, point at a very um, important issue." But uh, when the episode ends, I say like, uh, "Okay, so they think the correct way is the uh, way that they are criticizing because, like, um, you." I guess talked about um, woman representation in the um, Star Trek. Mm-hmm. In the classical series, uh, the most of the episodes ends with uh, a w- 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 woman making a making trouble for the whole crew because uh, she is either emotional or something like that. And um, is it different in the next generation? 
Um, there is a lot of pro. Okay, so the question, very generally, to put it in the microphone, we got it. Okay, okay, super. Um, so regarding women's representation in Star Trek, generally, um, there there was a lot that was quite advanced for its time. This is something that definitely changed quite a bit from the '60s till the '90s when this show was really when the Next Generation was really peaking. Um, but still, that said, I mean, there is still um, a real gender stereotyping of these roles. Um, Counselor Deanna Troy, for example. Um, you know, is the more emotional. She's the counselor. You've got uh, Whoopi Goldberg as Guinan, right. who is, look up those episodes. I remember as a kid, those were she my favorites. She wears a lot of purple, right? Yes, she's got a fantastic purple outfit, and she give, she dispenses advice at the bar. Like, So it's wonderful to see her, but again, like she's the one dispensing life advice at the bar. Like, it's, you know, these are not necessarily badass women, although... You know, the doctor is now a woman, and, and you know, you, you sort of see women around to an extent that was not the case in the original series. So there's progress, but the limits to that progress, especially looking back on it, are also pretty clear. So, yeah, I mean, you can sort of see, you know, the leaps that are made socially and, you know, like Wickham was saying, what, what people are ready for in any given moment in history. That certainly bleeds into what Trek is doing. But at the same time, in the episodic structure, there are, you know, there's a contained way to push these boundaries, to interrogate these boundaries and maybe, um, you know, bring in other kinds of representation that aren't going to be in the, the, the infrastructure of the series. The, the doctor... Uh, Dr. Crusher. Dr. Crusher has a great line about male and female roles. So there, there is a sense that they're being at least kind of snarky and reflective about it, but certainly not trying to push the envelope yeah. too much. So it was nice. It was nice though that, that there was an acknowledgement yeah. of of kind of the hypocrisy and yeah. things like Still, that. Still, I had to enter a code for restricted content on this episode. Did anybody really? Else? Yeah, I did not. Code. <laughs> you need to check your parental. I, uh, I mean, what do I have my settings? For? I, I don't I know. That it's seems like problematic. No, I just <laughs> I just turned it right How on. How old was I when I watched this? <laughs> just on network television it's very violent i like how all I mean, the sci-fi stuff in it that was the other thing is like it's clearly more interested in talking about human issues as opposed to any of the sci-fi stuff oh yeah it's just it's social issue social issue uh we What's have the to thing? plug uh, the, the null thing space the thing. null space yeah. yes but about parsecs fix the uh, null the, space the, we're running out of power okay now that's done let's continue our discussion of pronouns gender roles. yes yes, yes. So that was kind of fascinating too. Yeah, the I was thought, I thought really that, that like there was that. there was more of a sci-fi angle to it, but yeah. I appreciate that they didn't waste my time necessarily. <laughs> yeah, you kind of know when to tune out. That's not your thing. Yes. Perfect. So I, I've got a couple of questions, but in case someone else also wants to say something, I'll just start. Start with, start with one. Okay. And that's more about the Star Trek episode, mostly because it it is also one of my favorites in, in regards to what it tries to do. And what I found really interesting was the fact that, from what I read, there was a case of a bit of a metaphor mix-up in the sense that the episode was written in the 90s and so trans issues were really not known at the time. But uh, since they chose to represent a genderless alien race as this uh, metaphor for gay rights at the time, uh, this, the episode, perhaps in terms of the, what, the, the way they intended their queer, queer coding, had some unfortunate consequences, especially with the conversion therapy and so on. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to questions like the pronouns and so on, it becomes exceedingly prescient, more than what they had intended, probably. Yes. Yes. So, um, do you think that kind of changes how, when it comes to sci-fi, when it comes to criticizing the way society currently is from a future perspective, we might be able to have some insights that 
we didn't even realize that we just had with, with the example of this episode. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, I think that's exactly how sci-fi is sort of meant to work. I mean, sci-fi as a way of imagining the future. I mean, I think there's, I don't know how vocal this is, but um, the, the, instead of science fiction as this big umbrella term, um, it's... Um, that, that's the one. Yes, thank you. Speculative fiction. Again, like sort of projecting in, like a, a vision of the future um, that is distinct from, say, like looking at steampunk, which is sort of, you know, re-sciencizing the past. I'm inventing words at this point. That's fine. <laughs> but, um, but that's also a kind of science fiction. Like what if better science in the 1800s and, you know, go from there. And so that's also science fiction in its own way. But a speculative is about, like, imagining a future and sort of we, we can't necessarily get all the steps in between what we're actually living to this future that's being speculated about. And, and I think it's always going to have twists and turns that we don't expect. So it's, it's not at all a surprise to me that in some ways – it nails it in a really like quite stunningly accurate way. And in other ways, it, like you said, it muddles the metaphor a little bit yes. so that we don't necessarily, I mean, even just the acronym, you know, LGBTQA, like all of this is so new. All of that happened well after this episode was on. And that's, you know, well after Ellen, I would say, you know, even since the new millennium, that stuff has happened. Well, and even it feels the... so much more entrenched than this, but it isn't. That's within my living memory, and I promise you I'm not that old. I'm older than he is, <laughs> but I'm not that old. Even the concept of, like, demonizing gender neutrality, right? Like, that that being somehow, like, obviously in the context of the show, but th that is not, that should not be as demonized as, as it perhaps should be. But, like, something like Children of Men, right? Children of Men... It's probably one of my favorite movies. Like Came 2006. Out, 2006 predicted all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like it is like, a, like a, you know, immigration reform and all the rest. But I feel like it is a case of like almost accidental prescience, right? That is somehow more impactful because it's like you were, you're not setting out with this kind of inherent, it, it's, it's almost like you're, it's a byproduct of the, the premise that you're kind of going for. For example, in the new Star Trek Picard, one of the reasons why they these people who I'm talking about hate it, I've not watched the episode, but it's all clearly in response to Trump. Oh. It's all of this kind of like immigration law and we have to the global warming is happening and blah blah blah. And the problem with it is it's not that the messaging is bad or the messages are bad, it's that it feels so forced. It feels like it's a direct sort of reactionary thing. Whereas something like this is reactionary, but in the in the aspects of it that aren't or it feels like it's kind of, uh, you know, taking an extra step from the premise of like, ooh, yeah, what, what would pronouns be? What, what, how would that conversation happen? Would she um, react to, how would she react to calling, being calling a she in that moment? Um, it's almost like them thinking it through is more interesting and more prescient because it is, um, it's almost like a, their fictionalized reality is that becoming true is more interesting than something that is directly commenting on reality. Mm -hmm. um, and that is inherently what the issue I think is with more recent Star Trek is that it is so on the nose with its um, kind of uh, politics in that way. Um, and again, not that, that what they're saying is bad, it's that the, the method. And if you listen to, it's done by this guy named Alan Kurtzman, uh, who's the producer of the new show. And he made like the Tom Cruise mummy movie. Oh. And he, and he made, he's terrible. Uh, and he, um, 
he talks about in interviews, he's like, well, I think sci-fi, this is my impression of him, well, I think sci-fi is about what's happening now, you know? It's not about what the future is. And I feel like that is, when you're going for that, it becomes more, it, it feels more obvious and problematic, I guess, more so than, than usual. Yeah, I mean, I think it, we, we lose this perspective looking back into history, I think. We, we can't really figure what will become well yeah i mean you have to talk to somebody who was watching the the original star trek when it was coming out like were these issues back then and they were there not every episode is going to line up with an issue that yeah. may be that may be part of it i mean i think there is some balance that you can strike you know x files monster of the week versus yeah. alien plot that kind of you know that sort of thing <laughs> could happen for any of these um these kinds of series but i mean why not make it about what's now this is actually a, a, a bulk of the criticism about Zack Snyder's Watchmen, is, which I just taught. Which I just taught, you know. So it's, you know, on my mind. Um, but that, the, the fact that he didn't update it, and then Lindelof comes in and takes Watchmen and makes a whole series, basically, right. all right, we're just going to fast forward 25 years, precisely to get at, okay, let's respond to what's going on now. Because I guess it's the nowness is part of the spirit too. of what's going on. I mean, Watchmen is a text from yeah. the late 80s, and it is absolutely commenting on the political situation of the late 80s and imagining an alternate history that gets us to a point where it's it's going to look familiar in some key ways and defamiliarized in other ways. And so that's always the balance that you're striking with a lot of these. It's you know, what's familiar and what is unfamiliar. How do we bridge that gap? How does the narrative help us get from a state of unfamiliarity with um, things that we need to address to a state of familiarity? And the narrative helps us through that. Yeah. I, I should say it's also probably just talent of, of the people who are creating these things. Sure. That's probably a bigger factor than I'm willing to well, and, acknowledge. And who's giving the funding, but we won't say his name again. Exactly. Anyway. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, other questions. Please go ahead. Go ahead. So, um, having talked about the Wachowskis and their various movies, I was kind of interested in your, what you think about the queer clothing in Sensei as well, which is very much a, a queer production, and, and also was something that they produced in between the periods between Jupiter Ascending and The Matrix Resurrections, I think. Okay, that's and, a good point, yeah. And I think what was interesting about, like, at, at least for me, the, the reason I bring this question up is that that, that series also has this production issue of Lily Wachowski left right in the middle of the after the first season and uh -huh. it got cancelled by Netflix and then got mm -hmm. a movie. And I think it also had this similar idea with this problem with Jupiter, Jupiter Ascending in that it had so many ideas, but it just didn't explore them at all. Like there, was, there were things in the final episode that completely well-built uh, details that were just wholly absent and were very interesting, but had no, were basically could not be developed, developed at all. And I think that kind of increase the factor of camp or at least made things a bit more slightly more weird i guess hmm. to be honest i've not watched uh since eight but i've heard it's very um uh, kinky for lack of a better word okay that's I, what I i've have heard also about not it. watched it yeah so um, i can't really comment but that's good that you bring it up because yeah. they it was certainly a big splash about representation when it came out i would say more so than the movies have been in a certain mm -hmm. degree um, but yeah, in terms of the queer coding of it, all I really remember is that it was, it was, it was very kind of unabashedly embracing um, different kinds of uh, relationships and playing off the sci-fi, you know, relation, you know, the, the sci-fi concept played into that because mm -hmm. they can like sense each other, right? Or they they have a connection. 
Um, that, that being the, the Sense8, presumably. Was Sense8 ever on television television, or was it straight for Netflix? I think it was. It wasn't already Netflix originally. Okay. Because uh, I would say just, just looking at history, and especially if we're talking about Star Trek, just television generally has historically been more open to this kind of yeah. you know, better representation, more representation, uh, better range of representation um, across all kinds of, of groups. Um, and of course, Star Trek, going back to uh, the original Star Trek, it having the first interracial kiss that was shown on television. I mean, just real, mm -hmm. again, at the, now we, you know, sure, whatever, but at the time, this was enormous in the United States. And so, I mean, that's, that's the kind of thing that I think seriality opens up a lot of doors there where you can explore things. And yeah, the problem is, is you don't necessarily close the doors that you open in a very satisfactory way. And there's always the risk that, well, the thing gets dropped. It's just, it's just part of the business. But what that does from a narrative perspective is it leaves open a lot of, uh, of material for fans to step in and fill in the gaps and, and really contribute to that narrative world. And what I think is so fascinating about the Wachowskis is just how many different narrative worlds have they managed to sort yeah. of launch into the universe? <laughs> just like, here you go, and have another one, and here's another one. <laughs> one of these has to stick. I mean, <laughs> everybody... The Matrix needs... theoretically stuck. Um... Yeah, I think that's, I think, their biggest success... But um, but that doesn't have to be the one that means the most to people. I mean, that's the thing. They they manage to come up with other things. I mean, their adaptations also, I think, connect with other texts in key ways. You look at Cloud Atlas. Um, you look at Speed Racer. Um, so, I mean, they, they sort of lean into other existing universes as well in, in yes. productive ways, even if or, it's or not Or just necessarily... like the, the transmedia push of the Matrix. Sure. With the well, they Animatrix, originated this. This Animatrix is what Henry... Yes, we just talked about game. this in class this week. Yeah. But yeah, Henry Jenkins gets into that in Convergence yes. culture, taking the Matrix as you know, his key example for what transmedia could be and maybe should be. And he wrote that book in 2006. And yeah. I mean, it's only more true now, 15 some years later, um, all the things that he said, and he used the matrix as sort of the, the urtext for like, this is the model for how to move forward, because all the other franchises that existed at the time at this turn of the millennium, we're talking about Star Wars and Star Trek, they were retrofitted into this transmedia model. They did not start that way. Yeah. Um, but they have certainly turned out to be, um, you know, reverse engineered, as it were, into these big transmedia franchises. I wonder if they will, uh, you know, return to television, if, if that is seemingly a more financial viable, because I, I think Sense8 was fairly successful. Um, I understand that there was dropping and reacquiring. Um, That's, that but considering, lot, yeah. considering their, you know, their track record, I hope that they can make something regardless. Yeah. Financial the, track record. Well, yeah, I, I mean, say. and if the fans follow, then that's also a lot of where the uh, yeah, yeah the, I'll follow. The, I, I need to check yeah. out Sense8, though. That's certainly, um, you know, that's something I've not looked into. Any other questions? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. Uh, so your description of the Star Trek episode, the main premise, it reminded me uh, a lot of um, Ursula K. Le Guin's The Left Hand of Darkness, that book. Uh, I, I don't know how much you're familiar with it or, like, if... if you saw parallels with it. Um, do you think it was inspired by it or like built upon it? And also, I guess in another sense, the, the book, uh, even Ursula K. Le Guin herself, like I think in the uh, version that I read, she had written a, a, like a foreword many years later where she discussed, where she like admitted uh, where she could have done better, like where even, for example, in, in that book, 
um, first located in like refers, I think, if I remember correctly, as all of the, all of to the all of the um, genderless um, beings on this planet as he, as she says, I just chose he as a pronoun, but then came to regret it in her own words, I think. So I, I don't know, it was, um, it reminded me of that book and um, I was wondering if you, you saw parallels as well. Uh, I haven't read it, I don't know if you have. No, I have not. Is it a science fiction book? Yeah. Uh, Le Guin is a very well-known science fiction writer. I think if you see parallels, there probably are some. I mean, obviously, people are not writing these series in vacuums, uh, and and the genre is going to drive quite a lot of this. Um, but I think you the the. the the, the longer we see people working in this vein, and because the, just the, the rate of change has been so dramatic, I mean, the fact that Le Guin could write something like this and want to be inclusive but not have basically sort of the linguistic imagination to embrace a, a neutral pronoun, I mean, it, it, it makes sense to me that that just isn't, you know, it's just not on the menu at the time. And it, it takes a lot of activism and, you know, pushing those boundaries to make that possible and to have the light bulb go off and go, oh, that that is another option. We could have just used they. <laughs> like, that's fine. But again, it's it's having the conversation like we see in Star Trek where the conversation is happening in front of us in real time and, you know, asking the awkward questions kind of on everyone's behalf at the time and, and, and seeing like, okay, we, we negotiate a response and then fine, moving on and we can proceed as such. Yeah. Yeah, I have not read it. I, I, I need to read more in general, I think. I'm too busy watching movies for this podcast. Yeah, I keep making you watch stuff. We should do a, you made me read that. Oh boy. I have a book to pitch you. Okay, good. The Sustainable Legacy of Anya Svarda. Okay, that sounds co delightful. Co-edited. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, I get I'll my champion in. I'll champion your edited parts. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there is a chapter that also deals with Varda and Le Guin. So that's... Ah, okay. Yeah. Le Guin was all over the place. That's not a surprise. Okay. I'm sorry yes. for my ignorance. Okay. Um, uh, any other... Yes. Yeah, so shall we take one last question? Yes. Is there anyone else? Please. That's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wish he wasn't sure. Um, one thing that I was perhaps also wondering regarding how representation has changed over time, because mm. Jupiter Descending is a movie from the 20, uh, 2010s, and Star Trek is from basically late 80s, early 90s, so it's very different, and then Star Trek original series is completely in the 60s. And one thing that you've mentioned uh, during the, the discussion that, I, that struck me was the, the fact that, well, Star Trek itself, is in Netflix co uh, classified as plus 18 because of... The whole series is? Uh, or just this episode? No, the whole series. Whole series. Um, oh, okay. Well, now I, I, I was wondering if it was just that episode. <laughs> I'm thinking, this is really creepy. <laughs> okay. And I think the most, most of that is because, well, the only way I could describe it is that Star Trek can get horny sometimes in the sense that in the sense that there's a lot of romance happening and Riker is... Right, yeah, Riker is usually involved, and, yes. And what usually happens is I think that it's, it's much more overt in the sexual themes that it discusses in that sense. But uh, when it comes to shows in the 2010s or to, on the, like, perhaps late 2000s, mm -hmm. I feel like there's much more representation in terms of the variety of people and the people of genders and, and creeds and so on. But... The way it's represented is much more tamer, in a sense, I feel like. And mm. perhaps, I, I'm kind of wondering, what could be the reason for this change, in a way, from, from the much more 
overt ratings are dis displayed in, I mean, in, in, the, in the 80s and 90s to the much more tamer way, but much more represented way in, in modern. I'm, I'm going to quote again Red Letter Media, but they coined a term called passive progressive as opposed to passive aggressive, which is to say that it has become kind of corporatized. The idea that, oh, we are a progressive corporation and we are going to include two women kissing in the background of a shot here in the middle of the Star, uh, Star Wars movie. And we are, you know, we're A plus, you know. <laughs> um, and, I, and I think there's a lot of validity to that. There's a great satire of this in The Boys um, the television show where they do a girls get it done ad campaign and, and, and the boys is excellent by the way, if you've ever watched the boys and then there's one superhero who comes out as gay and they make a, uh, rainbow theme park about her gayness as a promotion for her coming out. Um, and so I feel like, and that's a satire, I'm not saying that exists, but I, I think that that is part of it. It's like, well, we want to give the illusion of representation, but we don't actually want to comment on it. We don't actually want to give it into any of the main characters per se. And obviously with things like Sense8, you know, you, you have more of a direct tie in there and it's more earnestly depicting these things. But I think that kind of a flatness or this kind of you know, not wanting to delve deep, I think that is the component of it. It's like representation, but without any sense of commentary or honesty about it necessarily. Well, I just, I think there is a, a, a bigger squeamishness though, just about sex in general. Wasn't um, there a thing about like uh, editing out for foreign markets as well? Something like this, I think, yeah, there's a lot more, um, yes, making it as generically appealing as possible does help tap into a lot of these. I'm still in shock that it's 18 plus on Netflix. I was literally 10 years it's old. Only in Turkey. Only in Turkey? Wow. Either parent guidance or 7, 12, 15 are the most. Well, now I definitely want to go back to the whole series. Like, what was I It watching? might change your worldview. I apparently. Oh. <laughs> I mean, if it didn't change me at age 10, how is it going to change me now? I don't, I don't know. But no, that was on network broadcast television in the late 80s and 90s so huh huh <laughs> yeah so I'll, i would I'll say keep a list i would <laughs> but yes, say yes Riker being horny is like a couple eps every season at least <laughs> multiple arcs yeah that much i remember but it was like for example it was very interesting to see the eternals um a movie that was quite lambasted by critics but i rather enjoyed but it was it was refreshing in its own muted way in the, in the grand scheme of the movie, that this there was Chloe Zhao's Marvel Chloe, movie. Chloe Zhao's, okay. yes, um, where there was just an openly gay kiss on the screen, and it was <sighs> and it was like a major character, and it was happening, and I and I felt a little bit of something there, even though I knew that there was some Marvel Disney <laughs> yeah. bots controlling every aspect <laughs> of it. Yeah. Even something like that, because in Star Wars, I want to say yeah, it's like a side character, and it's excuse me, it's like a side character, and it's off in the background. It was something so, it was something so, so refreshingly honest about the way that it was filmed formally. So I would say that thanks to maybe some more um, kind of artourish voices in that scene, which can also backfire. Um, you know, Eternals didn't, no one, no one likes Eternals other than me. Um, and for other reasons, maybe not because <laughs> of that. But um, so I think that there's, you know, 
in a, in a movie that was a bunch of different characters, the fact that one of the main ones has an openly gay kiss was very refreshing. So I do think that there is, and then what did that come out last year? Yeah. Um, so I or do. Or a hundred years ago. Or, or yeah, one or the other. Time, really. what, what meaning? Yeah. So shout out to Eternals. Yeah. Well, no, I will say that one, one thing that I've I've kind of read about, and I, but probably just through Twitter threads. I don't. I've not done you know, serious academic reading on this, but there is sort of a, a, a school of thought that is nostalgic for a time when you know anything queer was expressed through code. Yeah. Yeah. And and you had to know the code in order to sort of glean the queer meanings from things, and so I and and you know, this is how like you know, Elsa the Ice Queen happens and keeps happening, and like the codes are you know, right there if you look for them, but nothing overt is going to happen because Disney or you know Marvel in that case is gonna yeah. you know sort of just get all nervous about it. But I mean, there is, I, I think this is sort of an old timey notion that, that there is something to be said for the encoded representation as well, that it's there if you look for it. And it's a lot of places you wouldn't expect it if you know to look for the code. So, I mean, I think there's, there's something about that as well, where it, it, it can't be that explicit, but it is no less there present. and present and very deliberately put into a lot of texts where, um, you know, maybe maybe we've lost the codes a little because there is this sort of pivot towards if we don't see it, it's not happening, and this sort of very literal, overt push. Um, or or I, it's I treated cynically. Yeah, exactly. About, I think yeah. I think there's room for both, but yeah, the cynicism does come down really hard. Where it's like, okay, it's this kiss in the Eternals, and what does this change really? And it just it. Well, that was my positive example. Feels, yeah, yeah, I know, but but I mean, there is something that feels kind of futile about it. Yeah, but it was still nice. Yeah. In the grand scheme of things. Okay. Uh, well, thank you all very much for having us. It has been a pleasure to record this episode of You Made Me Watch That yes. with you all. Yes, this is a production of the Department of Communication and Design at Bielkent University. Um, check out our website at comd, that's comd.bielkent.edu.tr. You can support the podcast by following us on Spotify to catch all of our forthcoming episodes and by following the Bielkent Cinema Society on Instagram at Bielkent Cinema, all one word. Big, huge thanks to Think Colorfully, to Bielkent Wizards, and as always to the Bielkent Cinema Society for the sponsorship for this episode. Give yourselves a big round of applause. We thank you so much. You all are also on Instagram, I assume. Follow Think Colorfully, follow the Bielkent Wizards. Um, thanks to all of you. Our theme music was composed by Dazi Azovsky, who you can also follow on, follow on Instagram and Spotify, where you can check out the newly released EP, Uzak Ilke. This episode was produced by Tylan Akul and the Bielkent Cinema Society with extra tashekular to our tech wrangler, Ozjan Akar. Um, Wickham, do you have a special thanks for us for this very special episode? I would like to thank David Lynch, as I do every episode. Um, <laughs> for his continued uh, support, <laughs> and also the fact that he made Mulholland Drive, um, which I consider to be the, one of the greatest films of all time. Is it a sci-fi film? No, but it, they, there, is a, uh, <laughs> there is a lesbian sex scene in it. So, ah, well. <laughs> so I feel like it was relevant somehow. Representation in the early millennium. <laughs> Did you know Star Trek Picard was directed by David Lynch? What? What? Oh, there is a YouTube video of Star Trek Picard directed by David Lynch. On oh, here. it's a mashup. It's a mashup. Oh, boy. Thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you Thank all very you much. Thank you, everyone.